reading from Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. From Exodus 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Revelation 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of scorpions when it stings someone. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. From John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much for reading all that scripture. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister for RUF at the University of Texas. For those of you who don't know, RUF stands for Reform University Fellowship. It's the campus ministry of our denomination, the PCA. And it's really good to be here with y'all this morning. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you know, when churches ask you to come and speak, you never know what you're going to get. And they gave the college pastor plagues today. So hope you guys are ready for that. Get excited. We're, we're going to talk about plagues. Um, but you know what? As, as hard of a topic that plagues can be um, and as painful as they can be, I want you to see this morning that plagues actually show us what is true. That plagues reveal something to us. They're, they're sent to shake us into revealing something that's true, and also they make an appeal to change. As I studied this passage, it made me think about a plague that I experienced when I was in college. So uh, one, my senior year, we finally got to live off campus at the university that I went to. And my friends and I all lived in this house, and there were seven guys in this house, and it was the nastiest, messiest house you've ever seen in your life. It was horrible. And, but we all, loved, we all loved it. We loved living there. We thought it was great. And we didn't think there was any problem with the cleanliness of our house until we got bed bugs. And kids, if you don't know what bed bugs are, there's these, there's these tiny little bugs that when you fall to sleep, they like to come and just nibble on you. And when you wake up and it feels like you have mosquito bites all over your body. And it's horrible and disgusting and nasty. And we all knew that we had a problem. Actually, one of my friends famously, uh, we were telling, we're, we're talking about how we have this horrible issue. And my friend Peter is lying in bed while we're having this conversation saying we need to just fumigate the house and get everything out of the house. And he's like, I don't want to clean up. You know what? I've made peace with the bed bugs. As he's lying in bed. And here's the thing. Plagues are meant to shake us and to awaken us to what is true. When we got bed bugs at our house, we had to deal with the reality that we needed to start cleaning. But not only do they reveal to us what's true, it makes an appeal to us to change. And so what I want to look at today are those two things, what plagues reveal to us, and secondly, the appeal plagues make to us, and then third, so what? So the, appeal, the reveal, the appeal, and so what? Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations and conversations of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, first, let's look at what plagues reveal to us. So I want you to kind of see how these different themes echo throughout not only Exodus, but the rest of the, the scriptures, and that's why we read this. But in Exodus 1, in Exodus um, chapters, beginning in chapter 7, we're introduced to the first of 10 plagues that are going to follow. And today I want to look at plagues 1 through 9. Next week we're going to look at the 10th plague. And I want you to see plagues one through nine are really telling us a story. And if God, if God really 
only, if his only goal was just to get Israel freed from Egypt, he could have just sent the ninth plague or the tenth plague, knowing that the tenth plague they'd finally kind of like give in and let, let them go. But instead, he sends plagues one through nine, and those plagues are actually telling us a story. It's not much of a story if you go straight to plague 10. It, it would almost be like, kids, have you ever read the book Green Eggs and Ham? If the Green Eggs and Ham would be a really short book if Sam I Am just showed up to our unna- the unnamed stubborn man who will not eat Green Eggs and Ham, and if he immediately agreed to eat it, the Green Eggs and Ham, you wouldn't have much of a story at all. And the same is true here. There's four chapters of Pharaoh being stubborn. And so... In order to summarize, and in the spirit of green eggs and ham, I thought I would give you a, a brief summary. Here it goes. Will you let my people go? Heed my warning, King Pharaoh. I would not, could not, for clean water, or to get that frog off of my daughter. Not for the gnats, not for the flies, not even if my livestock dies. Not for boils, hail, or locusts on my land. And not if it's so dark I can't see my hand. I will not heed your warning, Mo. I will not let your people go. <laughs> Spent way too much time writing that, by the way. <laughs> but uh, why all these plagues? Why plagues one through nine? What is the story that it's telling? And here's what I want you to see. The plagues are revealing a battle of the gods. Dr. John Currid, in his book, uh, Against the Gods, he he writes that the plagues are showing us which God is really powerful. You have the gods of Egypt at war against the God of Israel. Because the plagues are targeting the supposed authority of the Egyptian gods. Gods like Hopi, the god of, who is the god of the Nile. Or gods like Re, the sun god. Not the ninth plague, the sun is darkened out. Or even their sacred animals like bulls, which we see dying in, the, in some of the plagues. But what I want you to see is that these disasters of the plagues are revealing these gods' powerlessness. Because that's what plagues do. Plagues expose false gods as being weak. Tim Keller observes, interestingly, that most of these plagues come about naturally. Think about it. The first thing that goes wrong is Moses smites the water, and then literally all hell breaks loose. What happens if the, if the Nile is smitten? Well, you're going to have frogs leave the Nile, and that's the second plague, the frogs leaving. And then it says all the frogs die, and in the Exodus account, it says that the Egyptians pile up all of these dead frogs. What are you going to get with a pile of dead frogs? Um, probably some flies and gnats. That's what comes next. And then what does that lead to? Well, it leads to disease. That's why the livestock are dying and there's boils. And then this weather system comes in and that changes the, the direction of the winds and it brings in these locusts. And ultimately you have the ninth plague, which is utter darkness. And what I want you to see is that this is really, it's a return to what we see in Genesis 1-2. The chaotic existence of this world in Genesis 1-2 as it's depicted, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Egypt is being deformed and its resources voided, just like in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and now there is darkness over the face of the land of Egypt. 
Because this is where false gods naturally lead us, to chaos. They lead to chaos, like the pre-creation chaos of Genesis 1-2, because false gods are weak. They cannot take care of you. God didn't have to use natural means. He could have done anything. But I think what he is showing in this story is that the world's natural tendency is disorder. It's the second law of thermodynamics for you scientists out there. Y'all know this, that all things tend towards disorder. And there is only one God who has power over that disorder. He has power to rein it in. And yet what we do, what Egypt was doing, what Israel is going to struggle with throughout the history of their life, and what Christians struggle with throughout our lives, is that we look to false gods that we think will make us happy or, or fulfilled or prosperous. That's why Egypt is serving Hopi and Ray, and there are many other gods, and we do the same thing. So my question to you is, what are your gods? What are the things that you are serving and looking to for happiness and fulfillment and prosperity? Is it beauty? Is it your reputation? Is it work? You know, as I've considered this, even in my own life and in the lives of the people that I work with and think about, what are the gods that we serve? One that I, that I think is a big one for us is security. We spend a lot of our life bowing the knee to the idol of security, thinking that it will make us okay, and so we serve it. We do whatever we, it takes to get security. We buy insurance policies, we get 401ks, security systems, we live in safe neighborhoods, and yet it takes one accident to change everything and for us to see that actually we can't, we're not in control. Maybe, maybe your idol is your time. Maybe you feel enslaved to maximizing your time. You have to get the most productivity out of your time. You have to get the most pleasure out of your time. And then when your time is interrupted, or if you don't, if you don't use your time as best as you could, you just feel disappointment or shame or guilt. You know, time enslaves us, thinking that we can get enough out of it. And the reality is, is that all of us are going to run out of it one day. We will run out of time. And what plagues do is they are sent to break us from our false idol worship to see what and, be, and reveal what is true, that these plagues can't save us. But they aren't sent, they aren't sent by an unmerciful God. What may feel like hell, it actually may hurt like heaven because heaven wants you to change and hell hopes that you never will. What may feel like hell hurts like heaven because heaven wants you to change and hell hopes you never will. See, God loves you so much that he won't let anything else be your hope because any other hope is a hoax. And that hoax is seeking your destruction. That's what we see in the passage in Revelation 9. Revel Revelation 9, when these trumpets are blown, it's another picture of plagues being sent on the earth. And this plague, this fifth trumpet that's blown in Revelation 9, these locusts that kind of harken back to the locusts in the book of Exodus when the plagues come, 
these locusts come, and the description, I've, it's such a long passage, I had to kind of cut some of this out, but like, the description of the locusts is very interesting, because at first it de- begins to describe them as beautiful. It, it describes them having a human face, beautiful hair, crown, they're, they're kind of uh, these beautiful, winsome looking creatures, but they're truly monstrous as John depicts them with these scorpion tails and lion teeth. And you would think that as people see these things for what they really are, that they would run away from them. But look again at Revelation 9.20. What does it say? It says, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver. These demonic scorpions that it said that their Lord is Apollyon. They're from this demonic force. You would think that as people see them for what they really are, that they would stop worshiping them, but no, they don't. They actually go after these false idols. And what these things are doing, what the false idols in our lives are seeking is your destruction. There's a band, uh, a local band called the Oh Hellos, and they have a great song called Eat You Alive that gets at this reality. Listen to these words. He said to me, child, I'm afraid for your soul. These things that you're after, they can't be controlled. This beast that you're after will eat you alive and spit out your bones. I've seen the true face of the things you call life, the voice of the siren that holds your desires, but death... She is cunning and clever as hell, and she'll eat you alive. So how does God enact judgment or his plagues, as it were? The way that he does it is by giving people over to the false gods that cannot help them. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, that... For God to enact his plagues is really just to give us over to the powerless, weak idols of our hearts that cannot save us. A little riff off of C.S. Lewis's thought regarding this is, is, heaven is man saying to God, heaven is man saying to God, thy will be done. Hell is God saying to man, thy will be done. Giving you over to the idols that cannot save you. This is what plagues reveal to us, but what do they appeal to us? A few things. First, I hope that these plagues are an appeal for you to hope. Because, look, Israel Israel has been weak, powerless, and defenseless for 400 years. Under the thumb of Egypt, in back-breaking slavery. And what happens is that the plaguers, Egypt, who has been plaguing Israel, the plaguers become the plagued. They, they have been, Egypt has been killing Israel's firstborn sons. They've been enslaving them. And what we see here is that God will have his justice. He will make things right. The things in this world that are plaguing this world and the things in your life that are plaguing you, God will have justice on that. You need to hear that. If you are plagued 
by sickness, one day sickness will find itself plagued by sickness. If you are plagued with joblessness, one day joblessness will be out of a job. If people in your life that you love have been plagued with death, one day death will die. If you are plagued with barrenness, one day barrenness will no longer reproduce. The plagues of this world will be plagued. That is how scripture ends. That is the hope that we have. That God is going to enact his judgment and do something to make things right. But the plagues aren't just an appeal to hope. They're also an appeal to repentance. Because before you start thinking of people that you want to see plagued, the people in your life who are plaguing you and you want to see God like plague them back, the reality is that all of us, we all deserve the plague. Because we are the plaguers. We're the ones who've brought this injustice and sin into the world. And I want you to see that God is actually patient with plaguers like me and like you. In Exodus 9.19, he actually goes easy on the punishment. He warns Pharaoh and tells he, he, Moses goes and he warns Pharaoh and tells him what's going to happen. And then he goes out and he warns all of the farmers and the people of Egypt, hey, there's a big hailstorm that's about to come and you need to get all your animals in shelter. He is patient and forbearing with them. Not only that, God wants the world to know who he is so that the plaguers can be redeemed. Look at Exodus 9.19. For this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that the name of the one true God, in whom we can actually have hope in the face of all of the plagues in our lives, in order that he may be known. He wants you to know him. So the plagues bear witness. They bear the witness of the God the true God of the earth. It's not just for Israel's salvation. It's for the nation's salvation. That's why we find ourselves here today. And so the question then for you that I would have you to wonder is, is he worthy of your trust? Is he worthy to be believed? This one who sends plagues on the earth. There's a doctor um, named Barry Marshall. He was studying what caused um, stomach ulcers back in the 90s. And for a long time, it was just thought that stomach ulcers were caused by stress, and they affected a lot of people, made a lot of people's lives really miserable. And so Barry Marshall is studying this, and he discovers this bacteria called Helicobacter pylori. And he discovered that it caused ulcers. But not only that, as he just studied it more, he discovered that it was also the cause for stomach cancer. This little bacteria was bringing about not just ulcers, but stomach cancer. And so the cure, he thought, was easy. Antibiotics. It's bacteria. Just take an antibiotic, you're good. And he goes and tells everyone about it, and nobody believes him. They thought he was crazy. He was dismissed. Everyone knew that ulcers were caused by stress. And stomach cancer from like, a bacteria, please. And the problem was he couldn't do a case study on, on mice or lab rats because Helicobacter pylori only affects primates. And so, the only thing that he could do 
is he took some helicobacter pylori from the gut of an ailing patient. He stirred it into a broth, and he drank it. And as the days passed, he developed gastritis, which is the precursor to an ulcer. He started vomiting. His breath began to stink, and he felt sick and exhausted. And he biopsied his gut, and sure enough, there it was, helicobacter pylori. And took an antibiotic, gave himself the antidote, cured. And he and his partner, Robin Warren, shared a 2005 Nobel Prize for their discovery. And today, the standard of care for an ulcer is antibiotics. And stomach cancer, which was once one of the most common forms of malignancy, is almost gone from the entire Western world. And I want you to imagine the first patient that Barry Marshall came up to to give the medicine when he said, hey, this is, I know that this sounds crazy, but this antibiotic is going to cure you of your ulcer. Do you think that they, if he told them a little bit about his story and what he had done to discover that, do you think they might trust him on this one? I don't think they'd sit back and be like, man, I'm not sure if you're like fully invested in this process. Here's what I want you to see. The reason that you can trust the God who allows plagues to come into this world is because Jesus became the one who was plagued in order to save us, in order to save ones who plague this world. Jesus entered into a world full of plagues. He entered into a world just like Egypt, where Egypt was killing young boys of Israel. Jesus enters into a world in Israel where the kings are trying to once again kill the young Israelite boys. Jesus enters into the plague. He becomes a man of sorrows. And he takes on the plague of our sin on the cross. He drinks the broth of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath to the full. He does it for you. And we see it's, it's a return to chaos. In Matthew 27, 45, Luke 23, 44, Mark 15, 33, when Jesus dies on the cross, there is darkness again. Darkness over the face of the world. Darkness from noon until 3 p.m. Jesus goes into the darkness of the cross. He goes into the plague to save you because he loves you. To save you from the plagues of this world, the plagues in your life. He goes into that because he cares about you. Why does he do this? He does this so that he can have you. He does this. He takes people who deserve the plague, and instead he brings them joy. It's why Jesus' first miracle, he shows up, and instead of turning the water into blood, he turns the water into wine at Cana. And in just a little bit, we're going to drink wine again at his table. And this wine brings us to remembrance of the blood that he spilled for us. So what? Three things. First, Repent and trust the one who is, who is plagued for you. Turn from your false idols that are weak and cannot save you. Pharaoh, Pharaoh tells Moses that he can go and make sacrifices, but that he has to do it in Egypt. Like when Pharaoh's kind of hedging his bets, like, you can't really leave, but like, why don't you stay close? And you can make sacrifices, but you've got to do it in Egypt. We're not going to let you leave. Moses says in Exodus 8.26, our sacrifices are going to be an abomination. And the Egyptians will stone us. In other words, 
hey, if you let us do this, we're going to go and, like, kill your sacred animals, bulls. We're going to kill them for our God and worship him. And everyone's going to get mad at us and stone us. You see, in order to repent, you have to kill the things in your life that will appear sacred. That's what the Egyptians were going to have to do. If Egypt had had repented, they would have had to kill their idols. And the same is true with us. So that means, like, what are the things in your life that need to that need to go? What are the idols that we need to begin putting to death? Second, so what? We are called, if you are a Christian, we are called to go into the plague for people because that's what our Savior did for us. We are called to be people who go into the plague. Larry Hurtado, who's a professor of New Testament theology at the University of Edinburgh, he wrote this incredible book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? I mean, people were just dying left and right. They're getting fed to lions. Great book title. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian? And historically, what happened in Rome in the second and third century is plagues came. Plagues came and people were dying left and right. The sickness. And over 30% 30 of the population died in a lot of cities. And everyone left the cities except for Christians. Anyone who had means to go and to leave the cities and be safe, they left, except the Christians stayed. The Christians stayed and they took care of the people who were plagued. So much so that the Roman emperor Julian writes to one of his priests, as he sees this happening, the impious Galileans, that's what what he's calling Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but also ours. Let us not allow others to outdo us in good works. The Roman emperor could see what Christians were doing. That they're running into the plague for people. This is why the early church, the early church was famous. If anything they were famous for, it was that they loved and cared for the poor and the sick and the suffering. Did you know that like we invented hospitals? Christians invented hospitals. Look up the Basiliata. It'll blow your mind. Just spend like 30 minutes on Wikipedia this morning when you go home. The Basiliata, it was... It was the first ever hospital, but it was also a trade center for poor. People would take pilgrimages there to receive care because Christians believe that all people were created in God's image and that everyone has dignity. This revolutionized the world because Christians were going into the plague for people. And third, the third thing I would ask you to do is to pray. Because Moses spends a lot of time going back and forth between Pharaoh and one other person in the whole story of the plague. He's going back and forth between Pharaoh and God. Moses spends a lot of time talking to God in the midst of plague. And we are really good at seeing the plagues of this world and posting about them. We aren't good at seeing the plagues of the world and praying about them. What would it look like if we got on our knees and prayed for the people who are plaguing us for the people who are plaguing others? What if we prayed for them? And what if we prayed for the people who are plagued? How might God work? What might he do if you go into the plague for other people? We do it not to earn God's love. We do it because we already have it. Because Jesus did the same for us. And he will change the world through you as you participate in his ministry. And you can do it. You can. It will be awesome. And it will all be for his glory. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we love you and we thank you that you um, that you did enter into a world filled with plagues for us, that you entered into a world to save people who plague your creation. And we pray that you would help us to repent, to believe, to go into the plague for others and to pray. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.